Welcome to their typical rainbow. I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. Uh, and welcome to another episode in the series, The Rainbow Dissection. Today, we're going to talk about gender roles and how being in a same-sex couple uh, brings to light some unique insights into how we can all sort of fall into these traps. This topic uh, came to my mind particularly uh, after an, our experience with a mother's group uh, when the kids were first born. So... When the kids were first born, we we thought it would be a good idea to connect with the local community centre and their mother's group. And they had an introduction night where both sets of parents would come in. Now, we are the only gays in the village, so every other couple there was, was heterosexual. But as part of their natural process, what they did was they split everyone up into fathers and mothers. So I'm going to talk about my experience on the father's side because I... I guess essentially had dubbed myself that because I was the working parent more than anything else. And I found it really alienating, actually, because firstly, it wasn't a particularly well-facilitated group. And secondly, the topics were almost cliched to the point of cartoonish. So at one point, one of the other dads asked, you know, who's taking their kid to Bunnings? And I thought, why would that be a milestone? What, why is it important for a kid to experience Bunnings of all things? And I think maybe sports came up as well. And I'm a cliched gay. I'm not a handy person. I don't particularly like sports except for the ogling. So I just felt really, I, I felt, I felt really outside of the whole thing. And I really got nothing out of it. I guess I'd, I'm not really sure what I was really hoping to experience when I was getting there. Maybe just the shared experience of being working fathers and what it's like to working parents, sorry, and what it's like to not be there with your kids all the time and to miss out on things. But it was, I felt <laughs> almost almost ambushed with how heteronormative the whole experience was. Whereas I felt very comfortable with the mums. <laughs> I think because it wasn't it wasn't like the first session or anything. It like we'd haven't we'd had a number of sessions which I had attended as the primary carer before we had Father's Night. So I think I I was very comfortable with the women there, and I felt like one of them. And we had similar experiences. I think because like our experience was primary carer experience, so it didn't really matter what gender you are uh, when you're talking about these things, like. Admittedly, I didn't have much to say on breastfeeding. Um, but <laughs> you could have had opinions. They wouldn't have been heard or valid, but you could have had opinions. And I think, I, like, I'd also say, you know, pregnancy and birth stories. But I think everyone has different pregnancy and birth stories. So we had our pregnancy and birth story. It was just super different. Mm. So I still had something to say on those topics. But yeah, I, I think I did not feel as alienated being a male primary care with the mums as you felt being a like a working dad among working dads did did the other mums ask questions about about how we came about to have our kids yeah everyone asked like the lollipop lady women at the hairdressers everyone asked questions eventually <laughs> <laughs> it all just depends on how comfortable they are mm. with asking questions but you know, we were a group of people who, would, like, some people were talking about, you know, having trouble, you know, producing milk, or you know, they'd be talking about cho- choosing between breastfeeding and bottle feeding and stuff. So we're all sharing all sorts of things. So I guess there, w- I didn't feel there was any particular need to feel weird about sharing our story, even though it was more different. 
Were, I mean, were you at any point ever hoping that you'd feel more connected? Like, rather than being the this person who, you know, and not like another parent, were you hoping you could share that kind of surrogacy experience with someone else? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I've, I've had other people uh, throughout the years who I've talked to about IVF. Like, I don't think there was anyone in that parents group who um, had gone through IVF. So that was something that was, I guess, unique about me in that situation. And I, also, we were the only twins. So I think I've talked to twin parents and IVF twin parents because you're, you're more likely to have twins in IVF than you are to have twins through normal means. So I think, yeah, like I didn't, I didn't feel out of place. And I think also, you know, being a gay parent, they weren't concerned about breastfeeding in front of me. <laughs> like, I feel like if we were actually just a heterosexual couple who had made a different choice, then I might have felt more out of place. If I had gone into that group as a straight man, mm. then I might have felt more out of place. But I think um, because there's sort of this idea of the gay man being one of the girls anyway, um, it was fine. And I remember um, we were out for dinner, like all the... The mums. They called it the girls and Grant dinner. <laughs> so we, we all like we all left the kids at home with the dads. Um we went out and the waiter's like, How do I get to go out with like thirteen women? <laughs> I immediately just said, Be gay. <laughs> uh but yeah, so I think like I think it is it's it, it is different for me than it probably would be for a straight man who's just trying not to fit into the gender roles. And I acknowledge that. But I think a straight man not fit into the gender roles could have done the same things. They might have just felt more um, out of place. Weirdly, I think I um, I sort of had a similar thing to what you did with the dad's night um, when I was offered the opportunity to go to a um, fathers of kids with autism support group. Because I thought, that's not my support group. That's not, like, my experience is not... The on I come home from work at the end of the day and everything's gone insane and my wife is crying on the floor. I'm the person crying on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yes, which was more a twin parent thing than an autistic <laughs> parent thing, but it still happened. Indeed. But yeah, I think that for me, being pigeonholed as a dad in the special needs area puts me into a situation where they're not my tribe. Because there is not, because they're not the primary carers generally. Mm. So it's a different thing. It's about like, you know, oh, you know, I'll I'll take the kids out because my wife's really frazzled. Whereas I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm I'm the one who's been <laughs> like Paul's not the frazzled one, so I don't have to like do this stuff. Mm. But yeah, I do wonder sometimes whether or not the people fall into these roles by default. Because I know that, I mean, this is slightly unrelated, but. I know that, having spoken to other GPs before, one of the things that a lot of male GPs will do, particularly when they're trying to relate to their their patients, uh, is ask about sports. Just because it's it's the thing that they know particularly well. And part of me goes, but why? Like, why why is that the default go-to? Do do female GPs have a different go-to? Or do they also ask the same sorts of questions? It's really presumptuous to basically just decide, oh, I am a male or I have a male patient. Therefore, the icebreaker in this scenario is sport. 
like, why can't the question be more open and just say, well, what are you interested in and see whether there's any commonality there? But I guess if you're immediately trying to guess at something you can talk about, like, you have to be flexible. Like, I guess if you say, do you like his sport? And they say no. And then you just, like, stare blankly at them. That would be weird. But, for instance, like, if you had a really nerdy, like, eight-year-old come in and you ask them, you know, do you like Minecraft or Roblox? It's not a bad first question, even though you are making assumptions. But even then, I would, like, if that were the case, I would often use either either the parents or I'd use a signal. So let's say often these kids will have a t-shirt that has some sort of character on it or they'll have a toy or sometimes some of them will actually be playing some sort of console and be like, oh, okay, what games do you play on the Switch or uh, or the DS or whatever they happen to be holding or iPad or whatever happened to be holding at the time. So there are... There are indicators you can use, but I'm talking when you're going in cold, when you have no other idea. Well, they're using an indicator as just a very um, stereotypical indicator. They're looking at the person's face and going, this is a man. I will try. I will start by asking about sports and see how I go. Mm. If you have no follow up, I agree. That is weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything wrong with starting with an assumption. Yeah. like, Like I said, I just, I feel like... It's hard when your only, as you said, when your only starting point isn't really a reflection of you as a whole, or even a really sort of strong foundation, it makes things very awkward. So, with this father's group, I had nothing in common with any of the other dads, other than the fact that we were all working, but... That wasn't... I, I, again, I think my expectations going into the group was wrong. I, I I don't even think they knew why they were there. I think they just kind of thought, oh, well, this is just a get-together. It wasn't about how do we discuss the issues of being a working father. It's just like, we're working dads. It is the normal thing. Like, it is just the expected thing and everyone else needs to adapt. And part of that, it kind of made me realise how I think you and I, by virtue... Or, although by, by virtue of being a same-sex couple, we don't fall into traditional gender roles because there isn't the other gender to, to be there. But it is funny how some how often we will use the terminology that's very stereotypical. So you'll be the stay you know, you're the stay at home you're like essentially the stay at home mum, the stay at home parent, but and I'm the working dad. But why does it have to be either or? Like how did we kind of come to that conclusion? Because there are certain kind of characteristics that come with those labels as well. Yeah. But I think in some ways, they do relate to us. But the, I think the difference with us is that we could have done it either way around. Yes. Um, I think... And, you know, we and we could swap. Like, I could start working, you could start looking after the kids. We are completely capable of doing that um, without, I guess, much comment from people, I guess. Mm. And I've, I've said to you from, you know, a, a number of times throughout our relationship that I always envisaged I'd be the stay-at-home dad. Mm. But the key reason why I didn't end up being that way is because I earned more money. <laughs> and so on a, on a logistical level, it just made more sense. Yeah, we, we made a financial decision. Mm. Yeah. Like, we were both, yeah, quite willing to be the stay-at-home dad. Maybe both preferred it. Um, but we made a financial decision. And we also made a financial decision not to split it half-half. Because my, like my, you know, me working part-time and you working part-time would not add up to you working full-time. So we didn't do half-half, which was another option that we probably had that, I guess, heterosexual couples sometimes don't even think about doing. Mm. Like um, there was a podcaster um, on Two Peas in a Podcast who basically said 
with the kids coming home for coronavirus, just because you gave birth to them doesn't mean you need to teach them. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you both have a job and you're both working from home, just because you're the one who gave birth to them does not mean you have to be their primary teacher. Mm. And I think for us, we probably split it much more, you know, 1950s traditionally because you were working and I was not and because I've been in the situation of their primary carer. So that what their primary carer did just changed into teaching them. Mm. <laughs> Whereas I know there's other couples who um, sometimes the dad has become unemployed and the mum has maintained employment outside the house. And these women sometimes feel really guilty which doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Or they're just overwhelmed with trying to work and, you know, teach multiple children for the dad to take on a child to sort of work with. And on your days off, you have done that. Like on the weekends sometimes and sometimes when you're not working, you have helped out with the schoolwork. Mm. But it still makes, like, we're still in the financial situation that it makes sense that because you can work, that you will keep working. And because I am available to care for them, I will keep caring for them. Although even early on, so when they, when we when we first came back from India, uh, you know, I was working in a job where I was sort of swapping between morning and afternoon shifts, mm. and we made the very conscious decision, or well, certainly I did anyway, that we would kind of at least try to do it half half as much as possible. So we'd split the night, so I'd be up three out of the seven nights a week, and you'd be up the other four. Yeah, you you are much more balanced, and I think we're probably also much more balanced with housework. Um, than heterosexual couples often do. From the statistics. Yeah. From what I've heard statistically and anecdotally, I guess. Mm. We, same-sex couples are statistically better, and I think we are, we have been better at balancing. Though I think things are changing. Like, I've heard a lot of people talking about dads stepping up. And at school, I think with the school-age kids, where the parents are both working, there is a lot more that I can see of uh, shared things. Like, sometimes... Um, one parent will do the drop-off and one pe- and a different parent will be there for the pickup because they just work out their days so they're sort of offset because the kids are at school. So I feel like things are improving. Like, I think, yeah, I think our generation is better than the previous generation who are better than the previous generation who were probably terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Although I will admit, you know... Part of part of my black and white thinking uh, from the past is that when when we were sort of figuring out about domestic duties particularly, I did get kind of annoyed at you for not picking up, you know, for not taking primary responsibility for it. I recognise that that was a flawed logic now, but at the time I kind of thought, well, you're at home, it's your job, you know. Yes. Whereas now we've sort of agreed that neither is particularly like doing housework, uh, but we figured out our roles, we figured out what we're willing to do, and, and we've sort of let go of certain obsessive, rigid tendencies, uh, particularly me, more so than you, and we just sort of went, all right, well, this is what works. You know, we've, we've laxed the rules of what society would have, has taught us as we've grown up. Yes. I think also you've got to look at the fact that over the generations, society's rules have also, you know, changed. Like we're looking at a point a couple of generations ago where women would be not allowed to work after having a baby or getting married in some situations. Mm. And even so I was a teacher up until, you know, not long before we had the kids. I like I wasn't working as a teacher when we had the kids. But if I had been, I would not have been able to access the seven years of maternity leave 
that a female in the exact same situation would have been at access. Mm. I don't know if that's changed, but even though I was going as the primary carer, my gender stopped me from being able to access the same leave as a primary carer where the only difference was I would have been male. I think... So, so us, you and I, like a lot of people in Australia, are big fans of Annabelle Crabbe, uh, and and her podcast Chat Ten Looks Three, and uh, her her two, I guess, um, deep dives into gender roles have been sort of quite enlightening about it. So, I, as I understand, I think that the parental leave for like the partner, like the, the non birth partner is actually higher it's still not equivalent to maternity leave but it is a lot higher than it was but it's it's not even to this day even though it's available part of the problem is that there's still an issue of uh, people not being aware lack of awareness is one thing but also the societal sort of perception that it is essentially weakness for a man uh, to take parental leave uh, so, and sort of that, and as part of that, it feeds into the fear of, well, if I'm not here to maintain my job, someone might take over and they lose my opportunities. And so, and again, this is all these, there's all these unspoken rules. I think, I can't remember if I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but I hate unspoken rules. They're exhausting because I like to know what the rules are before I start playing the game. And this is one of those unspoken rules that essentially means that you act on misinformation and fear and that's never a good place to start but if you have if anyone out there has not yet read the wife drought by animal crab or her quarterly essay men at work which is sort of the like the uh, the follow-up of wife drought a few years later um it's really quite uh enlightening and it's it's not it's not statistics heavy in any way it's actually very relevant and really it makes you look at gender roles it makes you look at the kind of assumptions we subconsciously have about what a man and what a woman should do in when when they're in a family situation and particularly you know in same-sex couples you you throw all that out the window to some degree because the rules don't necessarily apply but it's easy to kind of assume certain positions so again the automatic my automatic assumption that because you are at home therefore the domestic duties are automatically a responsibility i didn't consciously go out of my way to think that it's just what came to my brain you know mm. Yeah, I think people try to put gender roles onto same-sex couples as well. Like, they try to fit same-sex couples into the gender roles, which they shouldn't even be trying to fit heterosexual people into the gender roles, probably. Mm. Um, And also, there are assumptions made about people based on their gender that is actually nothing to do with their gender. Like, I remember early on when the boys were quite young, there was a study that proved that it wasn't that men didn't hear babies crying. Primary carers were better at hearing babies crying, no matter what their gender was. Mm. I thought that was interesting because I could almost relate to the other women saying, oh, you know, my husband slept through this. I don't know how he did that. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, mine does that too. (laughs) I'm a man. (laughs) I'm glad no one thought that, you know, the babies were just crying while we both slept through it. (laughs) That sounds like a very bad anti-gay ad. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> but yeah, like, I think, yeah, you don't have to be a woman to be the primary carer, but people people do assume it, and I guess statistically it is more likely. Mm. The, uh, we were talking the other day, 
in preparation for this about that article that that woman in the UK wrote about the one who di- who didn't want to be a mum but felt forced into it. Yes, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so there was a woman um, in the UK, and this article came out when the kids were babies. Like I must have been reading a lot of articles. I don't know why I was reading so many articles. Um, so there's a woman in the UK, and she basically had written this article um, because she regretted having children. Um, and she basically went through, like she wrote about in the article about how she'd always said she didn't want to have children. Everyone told her, you'll change your mind or you'll regret it or whatever. And eventually she just felt so pressured that she had these children. And now it was like 20 years later and she still regretted having these children. And one of them, I think it was disabled. So she was still having to be this child's mother, even when this child should have been an independent person. Like, I guess, full-on, full-time mother, as mm. opposed to just being the mother of a normal 20-year-old. Mm. Um, and everyone, like, around it, a lot of people were saying, what a horrible woman. And I'm like, why? Like, why do you think this is a horrible woman? She is a woman who said, I don't want to have children. Society pressured her to the point where she did it. And then she, 20 years later, is like, yeah, I was right. No one listened to me, but this is, I was right. And I felt really sorry for this woman. Like, I, yeah, I feel very sorry for people who um, feel that they need to have a baby when they don't really want to have a baby, which is generally women. Mm. I, uh, I had a conversation with, uh, with my best friend the other, the other day about um, whether or not he really wanted to have kids. So he, he and his husband uh, got legally married earlier this year, but they've been together now for about maybe eight or nine years. Uh, and so the kids came on and off the table um, throughout the years. Uh, but at the moment, they're very happy with their two pugs. And and that's and they love their travelling and they love the life that they have. But lately, what they've noticed is that now that their life is a little more settled, they've kind of reached... They've reached the point in their careers where they're pretty happy with where they are, so there's not going to be much more forward momentum... Um, in a good way, like they kind of reach the pinnacle where they want to be for the moment and uh, financially they're pretty resolved. They started thinking about kids again and it was interesting. One of the, th- one of the th- uh, thoughts that came up was um, one of them is a nutritionist and his issue, his, his biggest barrier for having kids was that he would feel like he would want to control the surrogate more. Who would actually want to control her diet to the point of, in in a positive way, of course, but control it to the point of removing her autonomy entirely, thinking that because it was his kid, he had the the, the um the right to do so. But he obviously recognised this was not okay, which is insightful. Um, but it was an interesting kind of barrier because I kind of wonder how that would necessarily work. Um, and obviously it wouldn't be an issue if he was the woman, if he was the the person giving birth, or let's say it was, um, they were in a lesbian couple and the other partner was the one who was going to give birth. How much right does one partner have over the other, over the other person's body and... Or even a straight couple, if, if he had married a woman and then wanted to control her diet for nine months, I'm not sure that would have been appreciated either. Yeah, that's that's all. I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I, I just thought it was really... It, it was the questions you have to ask yourself um, uh, when, when thinking about these things. It's kind of interesting and in how there is this... And the expectation. I, I, I find a lot of my, my conversations come back to the topic of expectation, but the expectation on 
uh, women and mothers to be a certain way and do a certain thing. You know, I I always get bothered by parenting books in, in the in the sense that I get they should they they're helpful if they give people solace, but ultimately. I, I, I get bothered by the ones who say this is the answer, like this is the way to parent, you know, you uh, and, and often they're advertised towards mothers rather than parents in general, but it's like, this is the way you do it, there is only the one way, and I, I, I feel for mothers, I feel for mothers feeling that, that kind of pressure that they think there's only one way when there really isn't, and I think, again, same-sex couples prove that, because we're not we're having to do things untraditionally because there is no tradition to be followed. So, you know, we can essentially write our own rules and, and cherry pick what we like. But for women particularly, I imagine they get, have to, they feel like they're being, you know, they're a square peg being shoved into a round hole all the time. That's quite possible. Hmm. I mean, the other thing uh, I, I, I guess I, I always question when it comes to gender roles more about, uh, our boys. So one of the one of the as cliche- in raising boys, raising boys. Mm-hmm. One of the cliches that that comes into my mind, which I know is not true, but you, you know, this is what happens when you get taught these things. Is that I I don't know what people will assume of our boys' behaviour is because we're gay parents. Um, so I remember when Matt was, I think it was about three or four, maybe he really wanted an Elsa dress from the movie Frozen. And you and I were like, yeah, that's fine. Like, we just, we did it. We had, there was, there were just no questions about it. It was like, that's what he wants to wear. That's fine. And he he wore it He bought it with his own money. The first time he ever had money to spend, he bought an Elsa dress with it. So he kind of been three or four. That would have been Chinese New Year money. It was Chinese New Year money, I'd say, well, like, yeah. So the start of four-year-old kinder, which means he was four and a half. Okay. And he wore it to a party or something. He He wore it to cultural day. Hmm. Apparently, Arendelle is a cultural place now. It has culture. <laughs> he wasn't it the only Elsa at cultural day. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, like, I, as, you know, while obviously I, I, I didn't object to it, there was a part of me that hesitated and thought, well, how much of this are people going to look at and go, oh, must be because he has gay dads. You know? Yeah. Like, I remember when I was studying um, child psychology, one of the things that stuck with me that I remember about raising boys is the fact that um, when a boy puts on his mother's high heels is generally because he likes the elevation and how the world looks different. It has nothing to do with high heels, <laughs> but people assume it's about like exploring gender, but it's generally about exploring height. <laughs> and that stuck with me because I'm like, yeah, like even I assumed it was just about exploring gender and I had no problem with that. Mm. Because I, I don't know, I explored with my gender, but I have always felt like I was a man and I'm quite happy being a man. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, I have no problem with that. I mean, I guess we haven't, other than that one particular situation, I don't think we've had to think about this sort of stuff otherwise. We're we're very open with the kids about... Well, there there was a point where Matt said that me and him were neither gender. Like, he actually referred to... Me being gender neutral and him being gender neutral. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, it was probably around the same time. Where yeah, he just kind of seemed to have a lack of gender role assumption, which I was fine with. Like, like you know, we hadn't raised him in like a Scandinavian gender-free city like <laughs> some people apparently do. Which is fine if that's what your choice is to do. 
Mm. I think it would be very difficult to raise a child um, completely gender-free. But he just seemed to think... I think maybe because um, most of the other primary carers were women and I was a primary carer and I was a man, he kind of felt like we were more neutral Mm. and he felt more neutral because he had, I guess, a variety of interests that weren't sort of this set of boy interests. Mm. But now I think he's um, more into boy interests, maybe nerdy boy interests, Mm. like, you know, being into Pokemon and video games, which in itself is sort of this weird stereotype that only boys are into these things, whereas girls are into it. Same with AFL. Well, exactly. I was about to say the the same thing. Ozkick, like, there was girls there because why would you, like... You shouldn't tell your daughter that she can't be an Oskink. <laughs> yeah. And um, Jake's teacher is actually a female footballer. Mm. So, uh, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, so I, I feel like the boys have become more gender pigeonholed mm. during school, which everyone told me would probably happen. And I do, I do remember at the end of grade one, where they got their classes for grade two and they got their male friends, but not their female. Like each of them had missed out on having their female friend. And I do wonder if that was sort of this turning point where like the school said they didn't group like the boys, like here's this group of four boys and put those boys together and we'll put this clump of girls together. But I, I do feel like if they had remained with their female friend, then maybe the pigeonholing wouldn't have happened so much. Mm. But I don't know. Maybe it still would have happened. Mm. I mean, the I mean, two two things. One, you know, it is interesting that as you said, you defaulted to saying nerdy equals boys. But again, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's just this subconscious thing. Well, no, like poker, Pokemon and video games. Most people would think um, is a very boy thing. But that's what I'm saying. Boy it's, thing. it's boy affiliated without being boy exclusive. But we all assume, you know what I mean? Like we just. Oh yeah, but it's, it's more of a problem in the like the twenties and thirties where you know the fake gamer girls. Like you're you're an attractive girl, so therefore you're faking this. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and there's even apparently something with sort of booktubers. I'm not like, so booktubers are basically YouTubers who talk about books. I don't know why it's called booktubers, but anyway, <laughs> there, apparently there was this controversy I found out about the other day about a you know, I imagine thirty year old straight male white booktuber claiming that if you go on YouTube and do a video about books like made up and looking pretty, you're a fake reader. And I'm mm. like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> People in general are ridiculous. We live in an age of ridiculous people. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think because I'm in nerdy areas like fantasy books, um, D and D, like I I very rarely played with women in D and D, which is a bit sad. Um, but yeah, D and D, video games, fantasy books. There are a lot of people who gatekeep, as they call it, like they just sort of go, "Oh no, this is not for you. Mm. You should be over there reading your romances, or you should be playing The Sims, not." This violent shooter game. Mm. Or, you know, D&D is just not for you. You should be playing Pony Finder, which is the My Little Pony version. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> which of course. I think it's probably more version. played by guys who think it's hilarious, because I think it is hilarious. <laughs> but I am yet to be able to play it. <laughs> so there are bronies. The bronies. Yes, the, the, brony, the bronies are probably playing Pony Finder. I'm pretty sure the girls are probably just playing D&D. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of our friends who are um, lesbians and who are parents, their daughter is hilarious. So our friends were very, very conscious about 
not gender uh, pigeonholing their daughter. So all the clothes, uh, you know, any any parent of a daughter knows that finding non-pink clothing for a girl is near impossible. Like it's just everything has at least some hint of pink. Uh, and but so if you're going to be kind of vigilant about it, if that's the choice you make, it's really quite difficult to overcome. You're essentially buying boys' clothes, which really, at, at that age, it, there's no real difference. Um, but as the daughter's grown up, dis- despite their uh, their best efforts, the daughter's grown up quite stereotypically girlish, wanting to put on makeup and wear dresses and be paint with- her nails with her textures, wasn't it? Yep, uh, and and glitter on everything. Like all her shirts have to have be sparkly and glittery. And uh, refusing to leave the house without girly clothes on. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, and it it is quite um, it's kind of amusing to watch because again, you you want to let your children be what they want to be, and that's that's it. But it the they were so, <laughs> they were so fighting so hard against it, and despite it, it just it just didn't work out that way. And I remember a study, and I don't know how reliable this study is. I can't remember the data or the specifics, but I do remember some study claiming that they could prove that it was a nature thing that boys tended to prefer blue and girls tended to prefer pink, despite the fact that historically pink was a boy's color back in what medieval times or whenever it was. I don't think it was that far back. <laughs> I don't know. At some at some point in the past, it's probably the you know turn into the 20th century or something. Mm. Anyway, so yes, it, it uh, we also, you know, as much as we, we gender pigeonhole ourselves, we do that to our kids a lot as well without ever necessarily thinking about it. Or, you know, so, and, but then sometimes we just can't fight it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, sometimes, especially, I guess, with a boy, um, unless you actively buy him girl toys, because it's sort of like the girl toys and then the other toys sometimes, especially mm. when they're young. So unless you actively go buy the girl toys, then you kind of end up pigeonholed anyway. Mm. Like with presents and stuff, like we didn't buy them particularly boyish things or even ask for particularly boyish things, but they got boyish things. And like I think the same cars with girls. and trains and yeah, all that. Yeah, Thomas and yeah, and I think it's the same with girls. Like you don't you don't ask for the girly stuff, but the girly stuff comes. Mm. <laughs> it makes its way in. Yeah. True. If not by, you know, presents from relatives, it'll come through their friends once they're at school. Mm. Yeah, so when, they're, when their parents pigeonholed them, or they, they got pigeonholed by their aunts and grandparents and uncles yeah. and other people. Oh, I guess about raising boys in another way is we do, we do want the boys not to sort of be pigeonholed into the boy thing. But we also, I think as parents of boys, it's important to think about not making them into the worst possible version of boys. I guess mm. that... You want them to learn to respect women. And one of the things that I found as a teacher was it was often good for boys who are smart to be around girls who are smart. Mm. And I guess this comes down to like the sort of girls being in science and maths. And they, you know, they shouldn't be there just for the sake of the boys. They should be there for themselves. Mm. But I think as a parent of boys, I do want them to have female friends who they respect intellectually and academically but I don't have complete control over who's in their classes or who they spend time with. So. Nor do we have control about how they perceive the world or what they do completely. That is true. But I think it's also important to teach them about respecting women. Mm. Um, I think that's a big thing about raising boys that I guess in a way is a gender stereotype, but you kind of can't ignore it. I would hope that by us being same-sex parents, we by virtue of experience, teach them that 
gender roles are a farce <laughs> that, you know, because I, I, part of, of course, I, of course, I imagine is that you might learn it from your mum. So if your mum was a stay at home mum who filled the gender role, either because of choice or obligation or pressure or whatever it was, then that's what you'd start expecting. Whereas with us, they can kind of see that it's not the same thing. Uh, yeah, the same, the same goals are achieved, but it's not, just not in the way that other people may achieve it. Yeah, like I'd hope that we'd be a good example to them, but we've got to also acknowledge that there's going to be a lot of media that's going to also have influence on how they view the world. Like we can, I guess, show them how to respect women, but if they're watching media that teaches them not to respect women, then we kind of have to more actively counteract that than just passively be nice to women. <laughs> true, true. So recently we were reading a book in which something happened that is meant to be romantic where a girl, she had her arms full and a boy kissed her, but she didn't want to be kissed. And I guess in these romance stories, it's kind of like, oh no, I don't want this. But then eventually she does want it. But I thought it was important to talk to the kids a little bit about this and just sort of say, is that the right thing to do? Hmm. Like you can like a girl and you can want to kiss her. And maybe eventually you will get the happy ending that I imagine, you know, will happen with these. But that you can't just kiss a girl while her arms are full and she can't stop you. Mm. <laughs> it's just <laughs> not appropriate behavior. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people have had this problem with fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty. Like you just go around kissing unconscious women. It's not a great message. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that it is important to not pigeonhole the boys but also make sure we give them the tools to be good men. Mm. I think, obviously, we also want to be wary that we want them to be good men in any relationship, whether they end up being... Whichever end of the sexuality spectrum they end up on. That that is true. Domestic violence is not only a heterosexual problem. Mm. So, thanks for listening. Uh, There's probably more to talk about, but we do want to try and keep these episodes to about 30 minutes so it's palatable for you. Uh, Maybe there'll be a part two. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Hey, look, if you've got follow-up questions, if you want to make any comments that you want us to respond to, just let us know. Drop us a line on at the Atypical Rainbow on Instagram and Facebook. Send us a message. uh, Leave a comment. Do whatever you you want to do to engage with us. And uh, please make sure you find our other episodes and rate and review us five stars. That's how people find out about us apparently. That's how the system works. It's all about star ratings. Uh, So we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time.